Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Going to just put in a little reminder on the front side of this episode. When we recorded these episodes, we had not started the process of splitting them into the science portion and then the management portion. So there will be kind of an abrupt end at the end of the science portion, and then we will just transfer right into the management portion next week. Uh, But got good feedback from our listeners on their preference of having these episodes split this way. As always, uh, appreciate you joining us. All right, welcome back to uh, Penny for Your Thoughts. Excited for today's episode. Uh, Andrew, introduce our guest today. Yeah, we're going to dig deep into uh, corn rootworm management. You know, it's been a, been a pretty big issue here the last few years, and I'm, I'm excited to, to introduce uh, Dr. Edwin uh, Banker III. Edwin, how are you doing? Pretty good, Andrew. Sean, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, Edwin, as we start, um, I guess, kind of maybe give us, give us your background. Uh, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Uh, just kind of bring us up to speed uh, to uh, today. Yeah, not a problem. So I am originally from uh, Michigan. I I grew up on a small family farm near Saginaw, um, raised uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, did a little bit of sugar beets. Um, And then we also had a a couple, uh, about 50 to 70 head of beef cattle and and some hogs as well. So a little bit of variety there growing up. Um, I did my uh, bachelor's degree at Albion College, um, got a bachelor's in uh, biology, and then I went over to uh, the University of Minnesota um, where I did a PhD program in entomology, uh, focusing specifically on corn rootworm management, um, and then also looking at uh, BT trait resistance, um, and then looking at uh, uh, the western corn rootworm as well as the northern corn rootworm and kind of what some of the differences are between those species and, and, you know, how they interact when, when you've got both in the same field. So, Oh, wow. So that's it's fascinating. Yeah. That's kind of, that sounds absolutely kinda, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> it definitely was, you know, quite a bit of work. Anytime you're, you're working with something that spends most of its life cycle underground, it's, uh, you're, you can't be afraid to get dirty. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we've ever done this in our podcast, but I don't think we ever had, something catch me as off guard as that. But now it got me thinking, I got to ask before we get into our normal routine, can it, can a Southern, Western or Northern mate with each other? So they, they, <laughs> well, the know, Western yeah. and the Northern can mate with each other. Um, they've done it in the lab. Uh, but I think if I'm remembering correctly, the uh, offspring of that are sterile. Hmm, interesting. So, yeah, and I I want to say they resemble the western, um, but they're they're sterile, so they they can't produce you know can't produce like a 
Western Northern hybrid. <laughs> Some so, super mutant. Yeah. So the, 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 <laughs> right. the, the radically immature part of my brain as he was doing his introduction was like, oh God, they found each other. You know, like, yeah. like, everything we know yeah. is over. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, so certainly, certainly excited to have you on the podcast. And, I, and obviously your work is going to lend itself to the conversation we, we really want to have. Um, we've got a pattern to our show, uh, which is, is really obviously the topic of today is corn rootworm. But outside of that, uh, tell us what else has you excited in agriculture? Is there something that, that uh, maybe over the course of the year or whatever has really had you excited? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think the biggest thing just in terms of focusing on rootworm specifically would be uh, the launch of, of the new products uh, containing RNA interference. So new mode of action, which, you know, we can get into, I'm sure a little later in the podcast, but I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like back when BT first launched, right? So it's a, it's a newer mode of action. Um, another, another managed way to manage, um, on this, the rootworm pest. Um, but I think kind of something else that, that I think would be a little more exciting um kind of related to rootworm but also related to insects in general is is uh some new scouting technology that i know some some companies and some university groups are working on um you know i i think when we think of scouting for insect pests we're we all often remember either having to walk out there and physically <laughs> roll our eyes find. <laughs> right yeah if if we're actually doing it in the first place you know going out there seeing what's out there and actually walking the fields counting or you know potentially even worse is dealing with those those sticky cards you know and getting that that sticky glue all over your hands oh, yeah. and yep. and yeah and so i know there's some companies and some university groups that are looking at either using sensors or um cameras that'll actually take an image of the insects as they you know either enter a trap or uh walk across a sticky card um, and then they're using an algorithm to figure out what that insect was. And so I think if if they can get that fine-tuned enough to be able to determine, okay, yeah, that's a that's a Western corn rootworm, or you know, that's a Japanese beetle or or whatever, you know, being able to get a count of that and then uh, uploading that data to to like a, a precision ag service like a climate field view or or another digital product to be able to provide that data real time um you know i i think that's that's kind of going to be the next thing in terms of of insect management is is kind of seeing some of these more automated scouting technologies you know maybe in the next five ten years um kind of give us a better better option rather than having to walk through cornfields you know <laughs> in 100 degree weather and, and dealing with sticky cards so yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really, it's a really timely response to it's interesting. We, we were, um, here in my office, the penny for your thoughts world headquarters, uh, <laughs> yesterday, and we were telling stories, Andrew and I were about, you know, our, our first introduction to drones and, and, you know, wrapping tinfoil around the antennas and, and, you know, just trying to find the fit for technology and just how much that's, that's grown and, and spent time discussing exactly what you just mentioned, which is with the high resolution cameras, certainly we can pick up 
insects and, and small seeded broadleaves and, and grasses and things we couldn't otherwise see. And so it's going to be fun to see that technology evolve and really how quickly can somebody take the identification then to, you know, some sort of a, of an application or response will be, will be really exciting. And, um, you know, the technology is evolving so fast. It's almost like now it's just, can somebody corral it into a useful tool? It'll be fun to watch. Yeah. And, and that's, like I said, I think, I think in five or 10 years, you know, the, the scouting conversational will be, you know, a lot different than what it is now. I, oh, yeah. I think, I think we're getting there where, you know, we'll actually be able to get that real time data in season. And then, you know, like you said, Sean, be able to make decisions on the fly, you know, instead of, instead of seeing a problem either after it's happened late in late in the season or, or, you know, even when we're in the combine cab looking at the yield monitor. So. Yeah. One, one thing I always think of too, right. I mean, there, there just has to be bias in scouting, right? I mean, you mentioned when it's 90 degrees or just, just the, the volume of the field we're able to see, right. I mean, it's, it's, that's a direct correlation to your ability or, or desire to go out and, and cover acres. And so that imaging I think could, could really help us see the whole picture rather than part of the picture. Um, it's exciting to think about those times. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, so as we kick off this discussion, you know, I kind of just wanted to do an opener, uh, Edwin, you know, because I think the the last few years you think about what we've dealt with, you know, maybe 2022 wasn't the the worst ripworm year, depending on where you're at. I mean, there, there was definitely bad spots, but overall it wasn't quite as bad as what we thought it would be. But if you look back mm-hmm. to like 2020 and 2021 growing seasons, I mean, it was pretty bad. There were hot spots. And, and, and I think a lot of this, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here and pick your brain is because, you know, I, I really feel like it's kind of like, you know, talking to people about fer- growers about fertilizer, you know, some are just stuck in their ways because they've been doing it the same way for the last 20 years. And, and I feel like rootworm scouting and management is, is kind of the same way. You know, I, I think there's growers that, and, and even other agronomists that just assume that our traits are working and that we don't, we, you know, we can just plant a, a traded corn product and we're not going to have rootworm feeding or adult emergence, right? And so I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this is just to get your input on and 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 also it ties in with with what you know when I talk to growers, I really feel like they're we we really need to change up how we manage and, and scout for corn rootworm. And so I, I think you know, just having this discussion and, and letting people be aware of of the resistance issues we have and how that impacts emergence, adult emergence, larva feeding, all that, I think it really it's it's just a good idea to get people thinking differently and used to this modern age of of dealing with and scouting for rootworm. So I, I kind of wanted to start with um, the cycle of the corn rootworm. You know, we don't have to get into northern, western, or southern right now, but uh, w- let's let's start with the life cycle of of the corn rootworm here in Iowa, Edwin. Yeah. Yep. So the the life cycle I'll say for for western and northern is is pretty similar. Um, under northern normal circumstances, um, southern is a little different, but we can talk about that yep. you know a little later. But so basically, both the northern and western are gonna overwinter in the soil as the egg stage, right? So. Um, if you think of the eggs, you think of a grain of sand, that's about how big those eggs are um, when they're in the soil. And, and you know, they can be at all different depths depending on your tillage practice and how deep they were laid and, and everything else. But they're going to overwinter as an egg. Um, they're going to hatch into larvae um, once they get enough uh, heat units. Uh, and so once, once the soil temperature gets above around 50, 55 degrees Fahrenheit, 
um, you know, they they start accumulating heat units, um, come out of that that diapause period that they're in as an egg. Um, diapause basically just another word for hibernation. Yep. Um, and so then they're going to hatch, um, usually coinciding with about V2, V3 stage of, of, of when the corn is out there. Um, and so as soon as they hatch as larvae, they're going to immediately start looking for roots to, to find and start feeding. And so they're going to, they're going to move through the soil profile, um, queuing in on the, the CO2 that the roots are giving off in the soil along with, you know, other plant volatiles, but their main cue is going to be that, that CO2 that those roots are giving off. They're going to find those roots and then they're going to start feeding. Um, and, and they'll feed, uh, for approximately, you know, seven to 10 days, depending on, on temperature. Um, and then they're going to move to the next, uh, larval stage. Um, and so, so in that larval stage, there's, there's three different stages or periods. We call them instars as entomologists. So if, if you've heard that instar term, that's yep. what that's referring to, but Basically, in the first instar, you know, they're feeding, um, but, you know, they're, they're still really tiny, so uh, they're not causing a lot of massive feeding. In fact, they're, they're small enough that in some cases they'll even burrow inside the root um, and, and feed on the inside. But once they move into that second and third instar, you know, they're large enough that that's where they can start to cause a lot of major feeding um, and, and, you know, start that pruning process on those roots. Um, and so they'll feed, you know, in, in each instar stage is usually about seven to 10 days, again, temperature dependent. So, you know, anywhere from three to four to five weeks, um, a larvae will be feeding. Um, and then it'll move into the, the pupil stage. Um, and so the pupil stage is, is basically where that larvae is going to go from, you know, resembling a, a worm and, and turn into the adult stage, which is the beetle that you know we're all familiar with and so during that pupil stage it's not doing any feeding um it's not really moving it's it's kind of just hanging out and going through that that process uh that changing process and it'll be in that stage for roughly 10 to 14 days um <clears throat> before the you know once that process is complete then it moves into the adult stage and so then the adults are when they when they move into the adult stage you know, again, everything else has happened in the soil. Um, and whereas those adults are going to emerge out of the soil, um, and then they're focused on feeding on plant material above ground. So they really like to feed on silks, really like to feed on fresh pollen. Um, they will feed on the leaves if, if those food sources aren't available, but they're going to be focused on, on feeding they're going to be flying around looking for those food sources. And then they're also going to be flying around uh, looking for uh, other adults to mate with um, and then uh, re-entering the soil to lay their eggs. So, you know, the adults will fly around um, when they emerge. Uh, females are usually mated pretty quickly um, by a male. In fact, sometimes they're, they're mated even before they come out of the soil. Um, and then they have to feed for you know, around two, two and a half more wheat um, before they're actually ready to lay eggs. And so then after that two week feeding period, the female's ready um, where she'll re-enter the soil and, and lay her eggs in clutches. Um, 
before leaving the soil and continuing to feed and then going back in. And, and so she may go into the soil and come out of the soil, you know, uh, it, it just depends. But each time she goes down, she's laying, you know, approximately 30 to 50 eggs in a clutch. Oh. And so she may do that for, you know, two or three weeks. Um, uh, and so once, uh, once we get to the point where, you know, temperatures start getting cold, um, we get that frost. That's what'll, what'll kill the beetles that are, that are still flying around that are still laying eggs. And then we start that process all over again, where, uh, it'll get cold, colder temperatures and that soil will freeze and those eggs will, will go through that diapause period again before hatching the following spring. So they only have one generation per year. Um, and uh, the main stages we're concerned about are, are the larvae stage and then the adult stage. So, so let's kind of go all the way back to the beginning, I guess. So eggs are overwintering. How does, yep. how does ambient temperature and winter cover snow cover or or whatever how does that affect if anything the the eggs in the soil yeah so that's a that's a good question so uh a lot of things with their with their development is temperature dependent um but with the egg stage you know they're they're pretty hardy in that stage um so with temperatures in the soil profile um you know they the actual soil temperature so not the air temperature because remember that the soil temperature can get uh can be a lot warmer than what the air temperature is yep, yep. but once that soil temperature gets around zero degrees fahrenheit or less and if it stays at that temperature for around one or two weeks you can start to see the eggs die okay um but you know if we drop to that zero degrees fahrenheit but then it warms back up again um you you may not see any effect on the eggs. So they're, they're pretty hardy. Um, I mean, they basically rootworm, you know, it's found anywhere you have continuous corn. So all the way from, from Southern Iowa and in, in Illinois, Nebraska, all the way up into Minnesota. So they're, uh, you know, they're pretty hardy and, and, and have adapted to those cold temperatures pretty well. So so it's, when, when uh, we, we, I, I guess I feel kind of silly asking these questions, but it, it's never dawned on me till right now to even consider them. So one would be what, what would be the approximate depths of the egg? Do we know like how deep into the soil profile they are? And then subsequently, I have no idea what the soil temperature is right now. I guess, you know, we, we uh, obviously measure that and think about it in the spring, but if I'd go stick a, a probe in the ground, I mean, obviously I'm, I, my ground is frozen, but I have no idea what what that temperature is. So what, what's the depth of the eggs typically? Yeah. So, so typically they're going to lay around four inches okay. in the soil. Um, but I mean, you've, when they, when they've done this, you know, sampling for eggs, they, they have looked at depth and they found eggs, you know, anywhere from less than two inches below the soil, you know, the soil surface all the way down to, to more than 12 inches. Oh, below wow. the soil surface. Wow. So, so when those females are laying their eggs uh, in the summer, a lot of times what they're doing is they're looking for, you know, especially when it's dry, they're looking for uh, those drought cracks that you get in the soil, you know, where the where the ground will start to crack and, and open up. 
um, especially when it gets really dry. And so they'll use those cracks as kind of like a, a highway, so to speak, or a path to get down into the soil, and then that's where they'll lay eggs. So if 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 you have deeper cracks, you know they will go deeper. But I mean, again, depending on your tillage, if if you're doing you know fall tillage, you're going to be mixing those eggs and, and moving where they were originally at in the soil profile. Yeah. Um, and then even you know if the eggs are too deep when those larvae go to hatch in the spring, they're going to have to travel pretty far to try to get established on their root system. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so depth, um, another thing to think about with soil temperatures is snow cover. So if you have a lot of snow cover, a lot of thick snow cover that can kind of act as an insulating blanket. And oh, so, yeah. you know, temperatures, you know, minus 10, minus 20 Fahrenheit, that soil could still be, you know, 20, 25 degrees, especially yeah. if you have a good, good snow blanket. So, and, and that was a really good so. question, Sean, just, you know, I, I guess I, I hadn't thought of that this moment, you know, as I was thinking about questions and stuff. So I, I just checked the Iowa, the Iowa soil temperatures uh, at four inches as of January 19th. So yesterday at four inches, we were 33 degrees. No kidding. So, so that really put, I mean, you think of the cold weather we have, that, that really puts it in perspective. You know, you got to get down to zero for a week or two. Yeah. That's, that's pretty dang cold. Yeah. And then you yeah. factor in snow and the insulation. And we were like crazy that. cold in December. You know, we had yeah. that 10 day stretch that was, that was at or below zero. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't mean to derail us there, but I just, uh, I guess a couple of those, you know, things I just hadn't thought of before. So, yeah. So, so Edwin, yeah, no. Uh, so, so Edwin, we kind of talked about, you know, the, the impact in, in, you know, the potential for the eggs not surviving cold soils. You know, we we often get to spring, and we we've especially last year we've we've had the discussion with the impact that saturated soils can have on on you know the survival of not just the not just the eggs but also the larva. Do we do we know how a saturated soil? You know, especially here in Iowa in, in Illinois. You know, obviously we have he some heavy black clays. Do we know how, do we know how saturated soils can impact the survival of those eggs in the larva? Yeah. So if if you have highly saturated soil um and basically we're we're talking situations where you're going to have standing water or or soil wet enough to have you know standing water so it's so pretty pretty highly saturated right yep you can have the some death occur in the eggs if if they're close to hatch um, if it's you know if it's early enough where the eggs haven't come out of diapause and, and haven't continued developing then there's probably not going to be much effect there um, but if they're close to hatch you could have some effect on the eggs um, the the bigger impact you're going to see is on those freshly hatched uh, first and star larvae that are you know moving towards those root systems um, through the soil because if it's if it's too saturated then they'll drown before they reach the roots but usually once they reach the roots they're kind of that's I guess you could kind of think of that as like the safe zone. And <laughs> so, you know, if, if they can make it to the roots and get established, then, you know, it, it would have to be extremely saturated. But I mean, at that point, you're probably more concerned about your crop actually yeah. coming up and oh, yeah. making it through that. Then, yeah. <laughs> so it's like a win-lose, like, Hey, we're, uh, yeah. we're killing some, uh, rootworm larvae here, but our corn plants have no oxygen to breathe. So, uh, we might lose some. Right. Plants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It it may not matter because we may have to go back and and either replant the corn or might have to switch it to beans. So yeah, 
<laughs> well, so so I guess let's just kind of keep thinking about that that life. So so the hatch happens. You've got the first instar larvae. Um, how does how does soil texture impact their ability to move towards that root system? Does does soil type play a, a significant factor? Um, it it could play a small factor. I I wouldn't say it's significant. I mean, it it there's some some previous research in the literature that that maybe says that sandier or coarser texture soils may cause more uh death um and and i think with that they were kind of thinking it's it's you know as the larvae are moving through it's it's abrasive hmm. i think was the thought there um or if if you have really heavy heavy compacted soil um could see some larval death uh, as they're moving through it and i i think the thought behind that was you know they're burning a lot of energy to try to make it through that really compacted soil and so sometimes they they expend all the energy that they have before they can get to the roots but i would say overall it's you know soil texture is not a significant significant impact on on larval survival so yeah, there there could be some some small effect, but you know, not not a major effect there. That that was a really good question, Sean. It kind of reminded me of of a, a question. I, I remember picking Edwin's brain here about a year ago, maybe give or take, and and I felt like myself fifteen or twenty years ago when I was just starting out and I was young and dumb and I thought I knew it all. And uh, I was I was asking Edwin, you know, I was thinking in my brain, how can I outsmart rootworm larva? So I was thinking, I was like, hey, we strip till. What if you know I know these these rootworm larvae can only move so much. What if we were to, obviously they like to lay eggs and correct me if I'm wrong here, Edwin, they like to lay eggs at the base of the corn plant, right? Yep. So yep. base so, of the corn plant. Yep. Yeah. So I was trying to think of ways to outsmart them. So I was like, Hey, what if we move our corn over 15 inches? Would they now, if they lay at the base, move it, move it out of the, yeah. out of the larva and then, zone. And then, yeah. And so I was like, Oh, I got it. We can outsmart the rootworm larva. Just, just do that. And then Edwin, uh, tell them what you told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, I mean, they can move pretty far. <laughs> <laughs> it's i i want to say uh oh i think there was a, a trial done back in the 90s where they looked at that you know how far away can they move in it and i want to say it was up to can't remember if it was 30 centimeters or 30 inches but it i know the number 30 is sticking in my head that 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 would have been the distance you know that they placed the eggs and then they were still able to get to the root so yeah. they're they're pretty uh you know, once they hatch, they're pretty determined to get to that root system. Well, thirty inches <laughs> seems like the magic number that kind of kind of does us in, certainly with Rose facing yeah, that. that exactly. would hurt. But well, so so kind of, I feel like this is a good place in the podcast to just kind of pause because as as we get ready to talk about kind of BT trait technology and 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 some of what we're going to talk about with RNAi and 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 understanding this. Can, can you just kind of give us the the high level view of how BT trait works, just so we we're on the same page as we've got this, you know, so we kind of understand the the life cycle, the egg hatch, the larvae moving around in the soil. Walk us through kind of how that BT trait interacts. Yeah, yeah. So the the BT trait, it's it's at the at the high level view, you know, without getting into the weeds. Basically, what it is is it's a a protein that is expressed by that bacteria you know bt stands for bacillus thuringiensis 
Um, but we just call it BT because that, that's a mouthful. So much right? easier, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so basically, you know, that bacteria, the BT bacteria expresses a lot of different proteins that actually can have, you know, killing effects on insects. So, um, and BT has been around for, for quite a while, right? I mean, it's, it's been yeah. used as a spray form or, or a granular, I mean, it's, it's even used in, in organic productions, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, in that form. Yep. And, and so, you know, what we did is we determined what those proteins were that, you know, are, are active against corn rootworm. They isolated the uh, gene sequences in that bacteria that cause those proteins to be expressed. And then we inserted those into the, the corn plant so that now the corn plant expresses those, those proteins. Yeah. And yep. so basically with those proteins being expressed in that plant tissue, when that larvae eats that plant tissue, that protein gets consumed. And a lot of this is going to be happening in, in the mid gut. So, you know, in, in, Insects like corn rootworm, you know, they have three guts, kind of like how some other animals will have two or, or four yep. uh, stomachs. Um, but basically, the midgut in insects is kind of responsible for your nutrient absorption. So I always kind of equate it to like the small intestines in animals or, or even people, you know, so that's where a lot of your nutrients are going to be absorbed. And so when this BT protein enters that midgut, what happens is that protein binds with receptors on cells in that midgut. And so these cells are are basically making up the, the midgut wall that divides the gut from the rest of the body. Um, so basically like a similar to like a stomach lining or, or, you know, if you think of it that way. Yeah. And so when these proteins bind to those receptors on those cells, it causes uh, pores to form in the walls of those cells. And basically when these pores form, that causes the midgut contents to rush into these cells. And basically it becomes like a water balloon. When you add too much water, the cells burst. And so that process keeps happening over and over again. You get uh, these cells bursting and eventually you get holes forming in the midgut. And uh, once you get holes, you get mixing of the midgut with the, the rest of the body outside of the midgut and, and everything else. And, and that's what eventually kills the, kills the larva is the breakdown of the midgut lining and, and causing the mixing of those, those gut contents with the rest of the body. So. We haven't used it yet, but I kind of want to use the applause button on the soundboard, you know, like we got them. <laughs> That sounds like a horrible stomach ache. Yeah. 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 It's uh it's it's pretty violent. Um, <laughs> which I mean they're they're little insects, so you know, it's it is what it is. I mean forget them. Fresh spiders yeah. or flies, it's the exact you know, same thing right? that happens to me if I eat Taco Bell three days in a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's wrong and, with Sean? Yeah. Taco Bell's my yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a B, got a BT train from Taco Bell. <laughs> Oh man, we shouldn't do podcasts on Fridays. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, the important thing is it's, you know, it's pretty effective and it's pretty quick, right? So it's, it's, it's effective because it's already there in the plant. 
So I'm not having to add anything when I go and place that seed in the ground. And it's pretty quick. I mean, it, it that from ingestion to death, it's usually about 12 hours. Okay. So we're talking really, really quick. So, yeah. yeah so that, you know, high level, high level overview of how, how the, the B team proteins work there. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good, uh, you know, introductory into our new mode of action. You know, we, we've been, we've been using these, you know, the current BT traits on the market for years now. And, uh, you know, this, we, we finally have a, a new mode of action, which is good timing and, and we'll get into some resistance discussions, but, you know, you mentioned, um, RNA or RNA interference. And, and this is just, you know, I think I'm kind of like you with this, you know, the, the technology that we have nowadays is just fascinating. And, you know, whenever I talk about this, I always, always love the story of the petunias and, and how they discovered RNA um, interference. But um, Edwin, if, if you could, can, can you explain how RNA interference works in, in controlling corn rootworm larvae? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, high level um, without getting into the weeds, because like I said, I'm a an entomologist, not a molecular, <laughs> molecular, <laughs> one of those smart yeah, people, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, someone, someone way smarter than me could probably explain it and, and get into the details way more than I could. But basically the, the way I like to think about it is, you know, with, with BT, we had that protein causing the holes in the stomach. Right. And so that, that is what's causing death. But with the new uh, mode of action, um, RNA interference, or, you know, we'll shorten it with to RNAi. Uh, with there, we're, we're actually disrupting um, the, the processes uh, related to DNA. And so here we're targeting a, a specific uh, a gene sequence within the corn rootworm. Um, and this gene sequence is, it's kind of what we consider like a, we call these housekeeping genes or, or kind of basic essential genes. So, you know, every, everything has these particular genes that, you know, are, are responsible for, for basic life. So if, if you don't have these genes expressed, you know, you're not going to live very long because it, it's responsible for, for basic, you know, life processes. And so, when it comes to corn rootworm and it comes to RNAi, you know, sometimes we'll talk about a, a DV uh, SNF7 or DV SNF7, and that's just referring to that specific gene sequence that we're targeting. But basically, with the RNAi process, you know, just like BT, this is uh, uh, expressed in the plant, so it's in the root tissue. So the larvae eats this root tissue that's expressing this RNAi, and when it when that trait is is ingested, it's going to interfere with the process um, related to the gene expression in in that insect. And so, the way I like to think of it is, you know, under a normal process, you have DNA, which everyone's familiar with DNA. It, it's you know, called the blueprint or the, the building blocks for the body, right? Yep. But if you think of DNA, it's it's really just an instruction manual, right? So it it contains all the instructions for everything that is supposed to happen inside the the larva. But 
it can't actually do anything. It's just an instruction book. Yep. So what you have is you have a, a second component called mRNA or messenger RNA. And that's going to actually read the instructions that the DNA is providing. And then it's going to turn around and it's going to go and make uh, different proteins from those instructions. And so these proteins that are being made by the mRNA, mRNA are then going to be responsible for, you know, different functions in the body, whether it's metabolism or, or blood flow or, or cell uh, replication or growth, you know, whatever, whatever processes are going on in the body that these proteins are responsible for. Breaking down Taco so, Bell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Breaking down the Taco Bell and then turning around and making you want to have the Taco yeah. Bell again. It's yeah. A vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so with the RNA I, RNA interference, when that is introduced into this process, essentially what that's doing is it's preventing that mRNA from reading the instructions from the DNA. So it's interfering with the mRNA from being able to read those instructions and then turn around and make those proteins. And so without those proteins being made, you know, that's where you get your death from. Yep. The only the only caveat or or I guess watch out here is with the RNA interference, you know, it's it's stopping those proteins from being made, but we already have a kind of a, a supply of proteins built up or a storage of proteins that have already been made that have been built up. And so those proteins that have already been made have to be used up first before the insect dies. So the RNAi has stopped proteins, you know, as soon as it's introduced into that, that process. But then we still have to wait for the proteins that have already been made to be used up first. And oh, yeah. so... Yep. With that, you know, BT, we said earlier, was around a 12-hour kill time. With RNA interference in corn rootworm, you know, it's about a four- to six-day uh, kill time. So it's, it's quite a bit longer, you know, than that 12-hour that kill time there. So, yeah, yeah. so that, that would be the, the main major difference between the two technologies. That's a, that's again, a really it's, good explanation. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a complicated it, process. Like, it, it's hard to describe sometimes. So I think I think you did a really good job of describing it. Well, thank you. I like I said, someone smarter than me could probably <laughs> explain it a lot better. But so, so essentially, so to, yeah. to so to dumb it down to to where I can understand, it's it's BT we're we're delivering a protein, right? Whereas RNA interference, we're inhibiting protein expression with for for a vital protein needed to maintain basic life functions is that yeah it it with bt you know with bt we're delivering a, a protein that i guess you could say is is acting like an insecticide so that yep. i mean that's they're called insecticidal proteins right whereas with the rnai yeah like you said we're we're essentially stopping you know corn rootworm specific proteins from being made so yep. yeah it's I just make that distinction because they you know they're both dealing with proteins, but they're they're different, you know, 
the, the proteins are acting differently or, or there are different types of proteins between the two. But yeah. Yes. Yep. So as we dig, as we dig into these, you know, trait discussion <laughs> and, and resistance, where, where do we sit in, in terms of resistance across the Corn Belt and, and within Iowa? You know, do, do we know which of our current traits available are we, we see resistance to? And, you know, is it all of them? Is it some of them? And, and then kind of where is resistance? Is, is it, you know, partial resistance or are we seeing kind of, you know, complete resistance with some of these populations? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess, um, you know, it kind of as a recap, we, we have four BT traits, you know, or, or BT proteins that are active against corn rootworm that are, that are available currently. Right. So, yep. We have our our first protein, um, which you know would have been sold as yield guard rootworm. Yep. Um, and later, you know, later versions would have been like a VT triple pro. If you're kind of thinking back to probably previous to 2015, 2010. So yield guard rootworm would have been the first one, um, and then we have a, a Herculex rootworm uh, and Agrisher rootworm. And so all three of those were, were kind of offered on their own at first. Um, and then later on, we started doing, you know, what's called the, the pyramid, right? So basically, instead of only having one rootworm active trait in a hybrid, we pyramid it together so that we have two in the same hybrid. Yep. And so the, the fourth protein, uh, which would be Duracade, you know, was never released on its own. It was it was only ever released as a as a pyramid with the agrisherb rootworm. But essentially, we have those four proteins. Yep. And so, currently, with the way the resistance status is is there, you know, in Iowa and the rest of the Corn Belt, there are populations of rootworm out there in the landscape that are resistant to all four of those proteins or hmm. all four of those traits. Wow. So, yeah. And I mean, it's these, it's high enough levels of resistance that there's basically no difference between, you know, a, a traded product and, and a non, you know, a non BT hybrid in terms of root injury. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it didn't take us very long to get there, you know, considering, um yeah that's for sure. rootworm came out in 2003 and you know it's it's 20 years later and, and we've got resistance to all four of those traits so so i i think you just answered this question but i'm i'm gonna ask it anyways what what does what does resistance look like how does that manifest in the field essentially lack of trait control resulting in overwhelming injury yeah, so it so the the way resistance is I guess confirmed um in the you know based on a field population. So so I'll say that we're we're close to identifying the resistant genes, but it it hasn't, you know, we haven't identified which gene in the you know in the corn rootworm DNA confers resistance to BT or you know, it's probably more than one gene. Um, but we we haven't done that yet. We're close but we're just not there. So, hmm. you know, in terms of being able to confirm resistance in the field, um, there's not like a quick, you know, quick test, quick check. Um, basically, you know, it's a pretty long process of having to collect live beetles, take them back to a lab, get them to lay eggs, 
and then get their eggs to hatch out and expose those larvae to the different traits and then basically see what percent dies or survives. Um, and so that, that would be the, the official process to confirm resistance. Um, from a, a root injury standpoint, um, with, with the EPA, you know, when we look at root injury, there's, there's the Iowa State uh, 0 to 3 scale, right, that we yep. use to rate injury on those roots. 0 is, is basically no feeding, no injury. A three would be the equivalent of three of those nodes having been pruned to an inch and a half or less from the base of the plant. So you're giving me horrible flashbacks. Of going out, of going out <laughs> scoring, scoring plants, scoring, yeah. looking at root, you know, rootworm feeding and resistance, and scoring nodal roots. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's 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 a pretty involved process. I mean, it, and it does take some expertise, right? Um, yep. And basically, with that zero to three scale. Uh, EPA has set a threshold of half a node or 0.5 for pyramided products. So, you know, like a smart stacks or a Chrome nope. um, or a Duracade or, you know, even a smart stacks pro. Um, basically if, if you go out to a field and, and you dig some roots and the average uh, root rating is above a 0.5, then EPA would say, you know, they're, there could be a problem here, right? So yeah. they, the term that we would use would be uh, greater than expected damage. So basically anything above a 0. 0.5 is more than what we would expect just from, you know, background feeding or, or random chance. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so 0. 0.5 is kind of what's used as a threshold. And then, you know, depending on how high above a 0. 0.5 you are, you know, you could, you could, kind of guess at what your resistance level would be but i mean the other thing you know you got to keep in mind sean is if if you have a field you know with really low numbers i mean it every beetle in that field could be resistant but because you have lower numbers of 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 larvae in that field you're not going to see a lot of feeding whereas you know if you have a field with really really heavy heavy pressure and a lot of larvae feeding on that root system but you know, maybe only, I don't know, 30, 40, 50% are resistant, Yeah. but you have all that feeding going on, you know, it, it, that feeding could be amplified, um, and, and look, you know, heavier and look like you have more resistance going on than, than what you do in yeah. both situations, you would want to manage it, but you know, it, it, it kind of can be a fluid situation. So that's, that's kind of why, you know, it goes back to that, basically that bioassay or, or hatching those collected eggs out in a lab yeah. to, to confirm a hundred percent yes or no, that population's resistant. So, yeah. So, so Edwin, I'm curious, I, I got a question for you re regarding larva, you know, hatch the, the feeding process and, and even adult emergence. And I asked this because, you know, 2020 and 2021, when we had a little bit more feeding, you know, it seemed like the emergence of the adults was spread out quite a bit more than what I'm, you know, if, if you think back to 10 years ago when we weren't dealing with these issues, it, it seemed like hatch and adult emergence was a, a, a lot more narrow of a window. And I can remember talking to a counterpart in Northwest Iowa where the, the, the feeding is quite a bit worse and resistance is quite a bit worse. And I remember he said, I think it was like the beginning of August and they were still having adult 
beetles emerge wow. in the at the beginning of August. So what what is partial resistance or resistance due to larva hatch or adult emergence? Yeah. Um so the the I guess I'll I'll start off and say, you know, with with a population in a field, you know, it emergence adults are going to be emerging out of in that field, you know, anywhere from 6 to 8 weeks. Um the individual beetles you know are going to be a lot shorter than that in terms of when they'll be around but the the actual population you know the, you'll have beetles emerging out of the soil for six to eight weeks yep. now the, the peak time period where you're going to have most of them come out is going to be a two to four week window um but you know having basically if if you go to a field and you have adults around and, and it's early enough you know I wouldn't be surprised if you still have adults, pupa, larvae, and even eggs in that field at the same time, just because, you know, that life cycle is, is the different life stages within a population are so stretched out. Right. Yep. So, so when it comes to resistance, um, you know, there, if we look at, uh, larvae that have been exposed to and fed on a non-BT, um or a non rootworm traded hybrid versus a a traded hybrid and that population is 100 percent susceptible um <clears throat> what what we'll see and it depends on the trait right so it's different for each trait but in a 100 percent susceptible population we will see the larvae or the adults that fed on the non rootworm traded hybrid emerge earlier than the adults that would have fed on the the traded hybrid and so you know in a 100 percent susceptibility um you know and again i say 100 percent susceptibility but we got to recognize that some of these are going to be able to survive but there's going to be some some effects right so yep. their growth may be slowed they may not be feeding as fast they won't be as big um as a as a hundred percent healthy individual, but you will have some survive. But we we will see those those survivors emerge later. And again, like I said, it's it's dependent on the trait. Some some traits it's you know maybe one or two days later. Um, other traits it's it could be up to twenty days later. Um, right. That explains how we could potentially see adults emerging the August first still. Yes, but as a as a population, you know, develops resistance to that trait, you start to see that delay get less and less and less and less until, you know, once we get to a population that's that's pretty pretty much resistant, you know, that delay disappears completely. Gotcha. So it it yeah. So as resistance develops, that delay gets you know shorter, um, but when there's no resistance in the population initially you know, there, there is a delay, um, there. So does that yeah. resistance, um, or the impact of that resistance affect Northern and Western the same? Um, how do you mean? Well, I guess like, like so on, on hatch, on hatch and emergence, I mean, is it, is that, is that resistance, does that manifest itself the same way in both northern and western. I uh, so 
they you're talking about the delays yeah 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 so you it between the northern and the western you see you see similar delays um depending on the trait but you do see a similar delay between the two it might you know it might be different between the species if you have the same trait you know it might be one or two days different but you do see a delay there and you see the same thing happen you know as a as the population develops resistance the delay gets less and less you know regardless of western or northern um is yeah is resistance is that a recessive or a dominant trait so it's kind of a hard question to answer um without them you know knowing a hundred percent how it's inherited because we haven't you know a hundred percent identified it um initially you know you would hope it's recessive um because then that's going to prolong the the efficacy and initially i think there was some thought that it was recessive um but now you know based on on what we've seen in the field and then you know looking back at some of those lab studies that were done where we selected for resistance in the lab it's you know it, it terminology wise recessive partially dominant dominant you know it basically it's the resistance alleles in those lab colonies were higher than what we initially thought so that would suggest that it's not a recessive uh the resistance isn't recessive Mm -hmm. um the other thing is is the way resistance is inherited in a population you know it it, we would want it to be inherited recessively if that makes sense Mm -hmm. but with the way you know with the way the bt traits are that target corn rootworm you know they're they're not a high dose event so they're not high dose and then also with the behavior of those beetles so you know they're not moving a lot within the landscape so they're not you know unless there's nothing for them to eat they're not really going to leave the field that they emerge out of and so we're not getting a lot of random mating i guess would be the way to to think about it so we're not we're not getting a lot of new genes or a lot of variation yeah. introduced into that field population so you know when you take all that put together it, it all of that suggests that you know it, the resistance is not recessive no yeah as we as we talk resistance to wrap up the resistance talk do do we know you know you often hear about soil applied insecticides foliar insecticides you know going out with a fungicide to try and control adults do we, do we have any resistance concerns with with either soil applied or foliar insecticides in regards to corn rootworm yeah, absolutely. Um, especially in uh, Nebraska, uh, you know, where where they have more of the pivots, and and so you know, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll run the foliar insecticide and and even their fungicides through those pivots um, versus having a plane fly it on. And they have seen um, populations develop resistance to uh, the pyre- some of the pyrethroids yep. out there. Um, that we would be spraying for foliar control, so controlling those adults, and then that that resistance to those foliar pyrethroids has then carried over into resistance in the larvae when you know some of those same AIs are used uh, as an infero uh, 
uh, insecticides. So, you know, I think it's uh, the active ingredient by fentrin, um, I think is, is one that has resistance both, you know, to the foliar form and then also the inferro form. Um, and I think there's a couple others as well. So it, it, we do see that, you know, especially if you're not changing modes of action or changing active ingredients, um, you know, you could definitely get that where you get resistance in the, the, the beetles, the adults, but then that'll carry through, you know, when you're trying to use a soil applied insecticide. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.